read God's word this morning in the third epistle of John. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words. And not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. This far we read God's inspired word. This morning we examine verses 3 and 4 of the short epistle. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, what role does truth play in your life? That you know truth isn't really my question, do you know it or not? I trust, I expect you do. The question is, but is truth just something in your head? Is it just something that we learned in catechism, in school, at home, but it really has no effect on how we live? Or is the truth that we've learned and been taught by the grace of God using parents and other means something that has changed our life? Does it form our thoughts? Does it direct our pathway and guide our steps? Do you love it? Do you seek to grow in it? 
Or is it just a thing that you could do without? What role does truth play in our lives? I ask the question because really that question gets at the heart of the third epistle of John. Third, John speaks of and refers to three different men. And three different men in relation to truth how truth does or how truth does not shape their life. There is, first of all, Gaius. He's the one to whom the epistle is written. And two things are said about Gaius, so that we'll have two sermons on him. In the first place, in our text today, he walks in truth. And then, verses 5 through 8, he is a fellow helper to the truth. Evidently, both walking and helping or being a fellow helper regarding our activities. Truth forms the life of Gaius. The second man is Diotrephes. Diotrephes appears to be the most prominent member in the church, a very influential member. We don't know what church this is, in what city. But he appears to be one who is influencing brethren to do things his way. As we're going to see next week, the Lord willing, his way is not a good way. Here is a man who knows truth, but he fights truth. He opposes truth, and he wants the members of the congregation not to follow or walk in truth, but to follow him. The third man is is Demetrius. We know very little about Demetrius, but it would appear that Demetrius is the one bringing this epistle from John to Gaius. Bringing an epistle to Gaius in which the apostle is telling Gaius, you are walking in truth, Diotrephes is not. Diotrephes appears to be swaying the people, getting the attention, you keep walking in truth. You are doing the right thing. Stick with it. But here comes a man named Demetrius with this epistle, whom apparently Gaius doesn't know, and so John has to tell him, Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. You may trust Demetrius, Gaius. He's a good man. Three churchmen, Gaius, Diotrephes, Demetrius, In relation to truth, what role did truth play in their life? That is 3 John. Now as we come this morning more specifically to Gaius, we see that John loved Gaius dearly. Five different times in the epistle, he calls him either well-beloved or addresses him as beloved. And in fact, this love for John, of John for Gaius, must have been something of the love of a parent toward his child. For John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. To be clear, I am not suggesting that Gaius is a biological son of John, but rather that he is a spiritual son. That John taught him truth. That much of what Gaius has spiritually, he has to trace back to John. And that's why John is so urgent. My beloved Gaius, keep walking in truth. Keep doing that which is 
right. Now, big picture application of the whole epistle to any congregation, no matter where you find the saints today, is this. In your congregation, let alone the broader sphere of church, the church world around us, in your congregation, many speak highly of truth. Do you see anybody for whom it does not appear to fashion, form, and shape their life? Beware of that one. Follow that which is good. Let's see how Gaius sets an example for us this morning. Then I call your attention to this under the theme, Gaius walking in truth. We'll notice first, Gaius godly walk. Second, the brethren's testimony to John about that godly walk. And third, John's great joy. There are times, especially when preaching the epistles, that a preacher has to say there's a central idea here and we need to flesh out that central idea. We call it a concept. And there's a concept that is very central to the third epistle of John. It's the concept truth. Begging the question, what is truth? I'm going to say four things about truth this morning. They aren't the only four things that can be said about truth. They are four things that will pave the way for us to understand our text. And as we go throughout the epistle, one could say even more things about truth, and we'll reserve that for later. Four things about truth. Number one, truth is that which God determines and reveals. Which is to say, truth is not just what I think to be truth. Truth is not just the way I was taught to look at something. It may be my thinking or my response or my evaluation of something is very wrong. Truth is that which God determines and reveals. If I'm walking in truth, I'm paying attention to what He is saying. And to say that truth is that which God reveals is to emphasize that truth is unchanging. Young people, we live in a day and age, a society, in which we're told that, well, that might be truth for you, but this is truth for me. No, not the kind of truth of which the text speaks. Not the kind of truth in which we must walk so that you can walk your way and I can walk my way. And God says of both of us, that's fine, you're doing it out of a, a sincere heart. No, truth is that which God reveals. It does not change. I am to conform myself to it. First of all, truth is that which God determines and reveals. Secondly, at the very heart of truth, if you would say, well, truth then must include many different propositions and ideas. What ties them all together? At the very heart of truth is the assertion that there is one only God and that one only God created all things, therefore is my Father in Jesus Christ to whom I answer. So that how I walk, again, doesn't, it isn't a matter of how I prefer or what I want, but I must walk, I must live a life in such a way that I'm ready to stand before him 
and answer to him for what I think and say and do. And at the very heart of truth is this central gospel tenet. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. Now you and I understand that that's a, a fundamental component of truth. We've been taught that our whole life. That's the very heart of the message of the scriptures. But understand that throughout history, even in Christian circles, are people who try to deny some aspect of the cardinal elements of truth. For instance, in our day and age, it's common to say that this Jesus was a man who lived once back in the year 30 or so, who was born in Nazareth, a man who was a good prophet, a man who lived a good life, a man whose example we should follow, but he is not God. And the way in which, in the day in which John wrote, it was the exact opposite that was being denied. That this Jesus Christ was God was not questioned by people, but that he came in the flesh. Oh, he looked like he was in the flesh. That's how the explanation went. But it was only an appearance. He wasn't truly a man. I bring this up not just because it paves the way for the gospel. He is God in the flesh because sinners, humans have sinned. Humans need reconciliation to God. And he is God in the flesh in order to do that work of saving us. But I bring this up not just to drive home that foundational gospel point, but also because John, in all of his epistles, is doing battle with that idea. Jesus is God, but not truly man. Look, think of 1 John 1, for example. I won't read it. But the first epistle opens with the apostle saying, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. He was so truly human that our senses, which can only perceive earthly things, perceived him. Then in 2 John verse 7, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Walking in truth is walking in accordance with the confession then that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, my Savior. And anyone who says Jesus Christ isn't my Savior, I can save myself, is not one to follow, for he or she is not walking in truth. In the third place, truth is always opposed. It's always attacked. Because it's God's revelation to us, Satan wants to, again and again to say, no, 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 that's not truth. This is truth. Don't believe that. Believe that. And yet what Satan is doing is saying, don't believe truth. Believe the lie. And therefore, I'm going to say truth is antithetical and the child of God has to understand the antithetical character of truth so that we don't say we're walking in truth when in fact we are walking in a lie. Again, the historical context bears out that truth is antithetical. 
the apostle is writing in a day in which Gnosticism is a prevalent heresy. Gnosticism was really a philosophical idea about the world and about salvation. It didn't have anything to do with the salvation from sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. It had more to do with my knowing the right thing. If I had the right key to knowledge, then my life was a good life and I was saved. Now along comes Christianity and the Gnostics, some of them anyway, say, well, we speak of a need for salvation and so do Christians. We speak of a, a certain a certain knowledge, a, a key to knowledge that it re is required to be saved, and so do Christians. So some people melded Christianity and Gnosticism together. Bear in mind, they didn't reject Gnosticism for Christianity. Rather, they tried to make Gnosticism Christian, and it didn't work. That's what the Apostle John is dealing with and responding to. But isn't that exactly what happens today so often in the church world at large? People hear Christian ideas and they say, well, I'm not going to give up my paganism. I'm not going to give up uh, the way I used to look at life. But I can take these Christian ideas and, and change a little about how I live or how I think. And in fact, in our text, what's being underscored is that you can't do that with truth. You stand with truth. You confess that the word of God is truth and what he reveals in it is truth. Or you cannot be walking in truth, but you're walking in a lie. In the fourth place then, and this is what gets right at our text, truth is a sphere in which we live. The revelation of God made known in Scripture, centering in the existence of one only God and Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Savior, this truth is a sphere in which we live. And that's why the Apostle speaks in our text of walking in truth. Not just walking according to truth, taking the Word of God as a standard and saying, I'll be sure I'm doing what it requires of me, but walking in truth, in the area of truth. I'm going to change a moment the word truth. I'm going to substitute a different word for it, and it'll help us get the idea. And John does the same thing throughout his epistles. He uses these interchangeably, so I'm not being innovative here. Walk in light. Walk in truth. Do not walk in darkness. Do not walk in the lie. Truth is a sphere in which we walk. Let me explain it this way. You're walking somewhere, perhaps in a dark forest, and it is dark. And because it's dark and because it's night, you don't, you're not able to see danger but you see a light off somewhere, a very bright light. You can see that somewhere there are people, at least if there are people there walking, they are walking in light. And so you in this dark forest say, I'm going to make my way toward that light. 
When I am in that light, I can see clearly. I can see my surroundings. I can see what's ahead of me. I will be safer if I'm in the light. And so you make your way toward the light. Well, that's the Christian life. By nature, we walk in darkness. That's to say, on the one hand, the world around us is full of darkness, the lie, unbelief, and sin. But it's also to say that in my heart and yours by nature is sin and unbelief and ungodliness, darkness. And yet God shone his light in you and in me by his grace. That's part of what regeneration is. He gave us now to understand him. He gave, gives us to understand his scripture and says to us now, I shone light in your darkness, walk in that light. Don't go off into the darkness when you're in the light. You'll stumble and you'll fall. Not even that, but don't even think that you're going to move out of the center of that light and go to where, even though it's not dark, it's a little more dusty. No. Walk right where the light shines in all its fullness. This is walking in truth. To walk in truth is to live antithetically. It's to reject the lie and unbelief. It is to confess the scriptures as the only word of God. And it is to conform one's life to them in every respect. That is not only what Gaius was doing. There's somebody else I point you to who is doing that perfectly, does do that perfectly, but did while on earth, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who being truly human, faced all of the sorts of scenarios we face and was guided by truth in how he would live and respond. Those four things about truth, now in that sphere, says our text, Gaius was walking. Thou walkest in the truth. That's to say that Gaius was a man who lived his entire life in the sphere of truth. Truth formed his life. His actions were truth and accorded with truth. We're going to focus on that this evening more in the uh, text that we have before us tonight. But not only his actions, his words... And his thoughts, we might work to be sure that our actions and our words accord with truth in some outward sense because that's how we're supposed to live in a church of Jesus Christ. But what about our thoughts? It isn't true for every child of God that there's times we have to say, my thoughts are wrong. May God catch us. May he awaken us to that when it's true. And it's probably true for every one of us many times a day. My thoughts are wrong. I'm thinking like the world here. I'm thinking out of the power of my old man of sin here. May God give us, even in our thoughts, to walk in truth. To say, this is how scripture would have me think whether it's what to think about a certain person, whether it's what to think about this activity that I'm going to do today, tomorrow, whether it's what to think about how to evaluate this idea that somebody's promoting and presenting, 
May the scriptures regulate and direct me in how I think. That is walking in truth. Gaius was walking in truth. He was living his whole life in the sphere of truth. And he could do that because he loved truth in his heart. Not only is he walking in truth, but the apostle says in our text that the brethren testify of the truth that is in thee. It's a matter of the heart. And one more thing the apostle says about Gaius in relation to his walking in truth. Inasmuch as he was walking in truth, says the apostle in verse 2, your soul prospereth. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, physical health, even as thy soul prospereth. The word there means your soul is doing well. It's making good progress in its journey. For you are walking in truth. We all made a journey today. Perhaps I made the longest of them, and I'm not drawing attention to me, but I can illustrate the point of the soul prospering now. My journey prospered because in the allotted amount of time and planned amount of time, I was able to leave my home and come here without any incident. Let's suppose that I left my home this morning, though, on my way to Chicago, and before I got to Benton Harbor, I had a flat tire. And before I got to the state line of Michigan and Indiana, I had a, another mechanical issue, hit a deer. That's not exactly prospering. Things aren't going well then. Isn't that true of our life from a spiritual viewpoint? so often, when we're not guided by the word of God, when the principles of scripture don't direct us in what we think as well as what we say and what we do, then we find trouble in life. Our soul is not prospering. Gaius's soul prospered in as much as he was making good progress in his spiritual journey. He was giving evidence that Jesus Christ lived in him. And therefore the question, are you and am I truly walking in truth? When you hear something that does not square with the word of God, whether it's at college, whether it's on the radio, television, whether it's in a book, magazine you're reading, can you say, that isn't true and I won't believe it? When somebody suggests you do something that is not in harmony with the word of God, it's a transgression of the law of God or violation of, of how the Christian should live who walks in truth, in light and not in darkness, can you say to that person, I will not. I'm living for God. Are we walking in truth? There's a twofold explanation for why the people of God can and begin to walk in truth. The first is the grace of God, and the second is the grace of God. The first, in other words, is the grace of God to us, and the second explanation is the grace of God in and through 
us. As we were in Adam, we couldn't walk in truth. As it were in Adam, as we were in Adam, we could only walk in darkness, we could only stumble and fall, we could only destroy ourselves. But by his grace and from eternity, God ordained that some who were descendants of Adam and Eve and therefore would have their sinful nature and would be prone to walk in darkness and in ungodliness, that such would be changed. For us, Christ came. And that he would die on the cross to take away the guilt of our sin. That he would earn for us the favor of God, the right to walk in light and in truth again. That's amazing. If you're walking in truth, brother and sister in Christ, what explains that is a grace of God toward you and toward me that we did not deserve, that we did not take to ourselves, that we did not help God arrange for us. It is all of his unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. And in the second place, the grace of God in us which makes us not just see truth out there, but as was true of Gaius, we saw, plants that truth in our heart, soul, and life. So that it shines, it radiates, it emanates forth. This explains why one would walk in truth. In conclusion to the first point then, I want to emphasize and remind each one of us, but the young adults and young people of the congregation in particular, that knowing your catechism and knowing your Bible memory work and being able to give some answers to elders who might ask them of you when you come to make confession of faith doesn't all by itself mean that you are walking in truth. It might mean you know truth intellectually, but when you come to make confession of faith, you are testifying that the truth is in you. It changes, forms, and shapes your life. Now, of this conduct on the part of Gaius, the brethren gave testimony. The apostle refers to that in verse 3. I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. John and Gaius are some distance apart. We don't know how far apart. There are some people who had been by Gaius and now they have come to John and they are talking with John about their past experiences and they bring up this man Gaius and they say, of many men we met on our journeys and on our travels, there was a man Gaius who stood out as one who loved truth and walked in truth. This is what the brethren are telling John. We're going to see this afternoon that these brethren are traveling missionaries. Why do they bother telling John this? Well, in part because they have a story and he's interested in knowing how all went with them as they preached the gospel, but also because they want John to know that John's spiritual child, Gaius, is worthy of being called a spiritual child. Truth wasn't just in his head. It's in his heart. It forms his life. 
Well, you and I also speak about one another, don't we? There's times when we get together and we talk about how our journey, our spiritual journey has gone since we saw each other last. What's new in your life? In the process, perhaps, in our living rooms, we begin to talk about other people. What do you say about other people? What do you say about person A? Now, you're person A, and you're talking to person B. What do you say, you person A, to person B, about person C, who's not present right now, but who you were with in the past? What story do you tell about him or her? What action of him or her will you bring forward and remember? The instruction that we're given here in this text is this. That we build up the body of Jesus Christ and show our love for that body when we speak of how other brothers and sisters in our life demonstrated the grace of God that was in them. We're quick enough to say how he or she irritated me in this or that way. We're quick enough to point out his or her foibles and weaknesses. And maybe that'll get nods of agreement from whomever we're talking to and everyone will sympathize with us a little. In your, in your journey, you had to be with that person for a while, you poor thing. That's not the way any passage of Scripture suggests we should be, which speaks of the church as a body and each member as part of the body. But that's not what these brethren did either. As they came to John, they spoke about Gaius from the viewpoint of how they saw the grace of God manifested in him. Do you follow that example? You know, the main theme of the sermon is walking in truth. Gaius walking in truth. Now let's see that as these brethren came and testified that Gaius was walking in truth, the brethren showed they themselves were walking in truth because one aspect of truth, especially as we speak it, is not just that we give an accurate record of facts, events, and how they transpired. He said this, then she said that, then they said that, and did that. But that we speak highly one of another and speak especially of how he or she has a gift that I need in the body of Christ. That's what the brethren were doing. They too were speaking truth about Gaius in as much as they saw the grace of God in him. And thus they promote the communion of saints and the unity of the body of Jesus Christ. Now why does the Holy Spirit mention? It's one thing that John would be telling Gaius, why are you and I told about all of this? And the answer is at least threefold. In the first place, John is explaining, and so we're given to understand, why John's going to tell Gaius the things he's telling Gaius. Secondly, and taking what I just said one step farther, John is going to be explaining his great joy. I'm not there just yet, but we're there presently. And then thirdly, this drives home the practical point that I've been making. When we speak truth of other people, 
Don't say my opinion is truth. This is what I think of him. This is what I think of her, and that's truth. But say this is how God sees him or her. That is truth. Now what happens, you see, as John says to Gaius, what the brethren said, is that no longer is person A talking to person B about person C who is not present, but person B, after person A is gone, calls up person C, writes him or her a letter and says, hey, you know what I just heard about you? And there too, Satan attacks the church, doesn't he? I just heard this and that. I'm going to tell you all the juicy tidbits. Why do I have to tell my brother or sister the juicy tidbits I just heard? Is that, is that going to build him or her up somehow? If they were juicy tidbits, that shouldn't have been spoken at all, and I don't need to be repeating. Should I not rather have gone to the one who told me them with a word of rebuke and a brotherly or sisterly reminder that we build up the church? But now John does this to Gaius. And it isn't juicy tidbits, it's, it's noticed that you are walking in truth. In a church where there's a Diotrephes who opposes truth. In a church where there's a very influential man who's trying to control. People are noticing that you are doing what God would have you do. So, when person A speaks to us about person C, and person A leaves and we go now to person C to speak to them, let it be also with a view to building up and encouraging and saying, you have a place in the body of Jesus Christ that others recognize and note that you're fulfilling in love Praise God from whom all blessings flow because this is one of them. You are serving the church of Jesus Christ. You see how there's, it's not the main point of the text, but there's embedded in the text practical application of how we speak one of another and how we speak does indicate whether we're walking in truth or not. But then that leads John to say, I rejoiced greatly. John speaks now of his great joy in the matter. This news of Gaius, as the brethren brought it, gives him great joy. I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. And in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 4 is not just a restatement of verse 3. There's two ways in which verse 4 is an advance over verse 3. First of all, in verse 3, the apostle is speaking of Gaius. You are walking in truth. It's a specific, a concrete instance. In verse 4, he states a general principle. I would rejoice not just when I hear that you walk in truth, but to hear that any of my children walk in truth. In the second place, verse 4 is an advance. Because when you read verse 3, I rejoiced greatly. We say, all right, 
There might be ten things that make John very happy. This is one of the ten. Gaius is walking in truth. And now John says in verse 4, no, don't think of it as if this is one thing in ten. I have no greater joy. It's this and this above all else that makes me rejoice. And so we come to a second concept in the text. It's not going to take as much to develop as the concept truth did, but we have the concept joy. And we have to ask the question, what is true Christian joy? It's important to ask the question, isn't it? Because as one walks, even in the sphere of darkness, there's a joy, an earthly joy, an outward joy, all kinds of earthly pleasures and happinesses that really don't satisfy, but we might think of them as the greatest joys, the kind of car I drive or the kind of car I intend to buy, the place I'm going to go on vacation, and all of the joys of earthly life, and the apostle is saying, as it were, just a second, that's not joy. True Christian joy is the activity of the child of God in his or her heart according to which he or she delights in God rejoices in the fact that in all that happens God is accomplishing his work of salvation let me say it a little differently but just to get it clear True Christian joy is the heart activity of the child of God that says, my Lord and Savior who died on the cross for me being truly man, now in his human nature sits at the right hand of God. He governs all things. He's saving a church over the length and breadth of the earth. I rejoice that everything he does has the saving of his people as its goal. True Christian joy. To spell that out, three things briefly. In the first place, true joy regards what the Lord is doing. It doesn't regard what is true of my life. It doesn't regard what I'm about to do tomorrow. It doesn't regard what happened to me yesterday. It is what the Lord is doing. Not me-centered, but Him-centered. And what the Lord is doing is working grace in His church gathering more out of darkness into light so they can walk in truth. What the Lord is doing is proclaiming his gospel to build up those who have been brought into truth so that we're strengthened in faith and in godliness. What the Lord is doing is irresistibly, sovereignly gathering a church even when the Satans and the Diotrephes oppose it. Do you rejoice in what the Lord is doing in the second place this true Christian joy is a joy in what the Lord is doing in others again it's not me first it's not me centered it's what the Lord is doing in others and this is a reason why when the church of Jesus Christ comes together and we speak with each other in the fellowship hall or narthex afterwards 
And we hear about an event in the past week in your life that is a reason for joy and praise to God. We join in praise to God. It is also a reason why as we have communion of saints and fellowship when we hear of a great grief in your life. We don't minimize that grief. We don't say, well, well, maybe you have that grief. But think of your great joy, but at the same time, bearing one another's burdens. We remind him or her that also through this, in a way we can't explain and don't understand, our Lord is gathering and defending and preserving his church and preparing us for heaven. In third place, while joy is what the Lord is doing and it regards what the Lord does for others, there is at the same time a genuine spiritual joy in recognizing that the Lord saving his church uses every member of the body toward that end and he used you or he uses me in a particular way for what the apostle says in our text is not just I have no greater joy than to hear that other people are walking in truth but I have no greater joy than to hear that my children and embedded in that idea, my children, is at least this. I taught you. What I taught you is bearing fruit. So the joy of which the text speaks most broadly is the joy that through the ministry of the gospel, the Lord gathers and defends his church. And the church of Jesus Christ today has that joy. But then there's a joy that the parent has. And the parent who knows himself and herself to be a weak means, unable to make the truth sink down deep into the soul of my son and daughter. But I see that God made it do that. The parent rejoices. And young people and children that's your parents' greatest joy. You understand that if you young people and children should reject truth someday, should choose to walk entirely a life of ungodliness and unbelief, that your parents will have to say, I remain called to walk in truth. My child walks in ungodliness and unbelief. It's not possible to have a deep, lasting, true friendship and fellowship, not of the Christian sort, the true Christian sort, with my child. In other words, let me put it this way, I don't suggest children and young people that you ever do this, but if you want to see your parents cry, if you want to see them grieving most deeply, Reject what they taught you. Tell them to their face it's a farce. And tell them you don't think there is a God and Jesus Christ was nothing more than a mere man. If your parents are walking in truth, that will bring 
tears to their eyes and grief to their heart. You know, the real motivation to walk in truth, children and young people, is not that it keeps your parents happy. It is that instead it is the way to serve and worship your one only true God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. But walk in truth that you might continue to have deep and true spiritual fellowship with believing parents. There's a word here to parents. The word is, first of all, yes, that when we see our children walking in truth and we have a great joy and we say that is my child walking in truth, we certainly are not congratulating ourselves. We're not saying I did something right. Somehow it worked. We are saying amazing. That I who knows my parenting was filled with sin and I didn't always teach them right I didn't always respond to their sins in a right way. And yet, through me, the Lord saved his church. Amazing. There's a second word to parents, and that is this. And it isn't just to parents, now it's to all of us. Are you substituting some other joy for this one? That's what we're prone to do. As we're walking in truth, as Satan constantly says to us, stop walking in truth, get over here in the darkness where I am, we say to ourselves, the earthly things are greater than the spiritual. That is, earthly joys are more than this. Or maybe a parent has a child who's not walking a godly life and has a true and genuine and understandable grief. Then... It's a danger. Satan is there, ever present. It's a danger that the parent says, because I don't right now experience that greatest joy, than which there is none greater, I'm going to turn to other things to give me joy. Are you falling for that trick of Satan? We at any age and stage of life, must guard lest Satan take this true, lasting joy from us. And now, back up one step. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Who said that? You say, John, about Gaius. I say, but who is John? And the answer is, he's the apostle of Jesus Christ. This now is the word of our exalted Savior, resurrected and ascended to God's right hand. This is the word of our heavenly Father himself, saying of the entire church, which he has saved by the blood of Christ. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Earlier I said there's a way to make your parents cry. Now here's a way to make your heavenly father grieve. 
Grieve not the Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians 4. Here's a way to make your Heavenly Father grieve. Don't walk out of the power and grace He gives you in the Holy Spirit. Ignore His law. Ignore His word. And your Heavenly Father will grieve. Only it won't be the grief of woe the twisting of hands, the sleepless nights saying, I don't know what I can possibly do to get my child to see it because this is God. It will be the grief of a father who says, my child is not living in fellowship with me right now, but I will, I will turn him. And so, when children of God do walk contrary to the law of God, not in truth, they find things don't go so well. Their soul doesn't prosper. That's part of God's chastisement of you and of me until finally, in grace, he brings us to say, my father has no greater joy than to see that I walk in truth, but I have no greater joy than to be walking with my Father, living close to Him in love and in fellowship, in faith and in godliness. And that becomes the real incentive, beloved, to walk in truth. Not just that Gaius did it and he set forth as an example. Not, first of all, that Jesus Christ did it who was some great prophet and whose example we are to follow but that Jesus Christ did so as your Savior, as the one who lives in you, who redeemed you and me, who sanctifies us, and who says, come. Walking in truth is the greatest blessedness and joy there is. Don't fall for the lies of Satan. Don't be satisfied with the joys of this world. Amen. Ready entrance into our hearts. We have every incentive to live in thy truth and walk in truth, to live as did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name and by his spirit we might walk more and more in accordance with thy word. For Jesus' sake, amen.